Well, good morning, Oak Grove. It is an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you. We're going to be all the way in Genesis 1 this morning. So you don't have to flip too far. And if you're new to like church, it's the first book in the Bible. So just go past the index and you're good to go. Or the table of context. So uh, let's pray and we'll dive right in. God, you're beautiful. And God, I pray that you would reveal your, your majesty to us in your creation. That we would see order. That we would see purpose. God, and also that we would see the point. And the point of the whole story is not necessarily, not just that you are creator, but it's pointing us to the fourth commandment, that we would keep the Sabbath holy. God, and if there's any of us here that really struggle with this idea of Sabbath, God, I pray that you would convict our hearts and that we would walk in in rest and in unity with you. If there's somebody here that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would turn their heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we're continuing in our series, uh, the Gospel of Genesis. And the, the theme of the, the Gospel of Genesis is following the story of the snake crusher. We're calling, calling it the Gospel because I want you to understand that the good news of Jesus Christ is, is in the story from the beginning. It's starting to be unfolded from the very, from the very first of the Bible. The snake crusher that I've been referring to, you see that term in Genesis 3.15, that there's going to be one who will crush the head of the serpent. From the seed of Eve, there's one coming who will once and for all do away with that ancient serpent, and that's Jesus Christ. And it's the central... The entire book of Genesis is centered around this idea Genesis 1 and 2 are building up to the fall and to the promise and everything that flows out of Genesis. It's not a collection of random stories. It's not, hey, look at how righteous these people are because if you ever really look at their lives, they are not very righteous at all. The point is that we're going to follow the lineage of how we get to Jesus. We're going to follow the line of Christ from Adam to Seth, through the flood with Noah to Abraham, through Abraham's children to Judah, to finally they are enslaved in Egypt. That's the story. And when you pick up in Matthew chapter 1 and you see these, these lineages in Matthew and Luke, it's all telling the story of how we got there from Genesis 3.15. This is one consistent story from beginning to end. So you'll remember from last week, the author is Moses, and <clears throat> Moses authored Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We call it the Pentateuch or the um, Torah. Torah, which means law. So when, when Jesus is referring to the law in the New Testament, this is what he's referring back to. The, the, the Torah is the whole of the law. Moses authored this book, and the original audience, this is important, 
is the recently released Jews from their 430 years of slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus shows us how God delivered Israel. And now, as they are following God in the, the wilderness, God, in the book of Genesis, he's revealing who he is, what his will for them is, and what God's desired relationship with this people is. As we examine the story of creation, we, like the Jews, we're going to be learning about who God is, what his will for man is, and what his desired relationship with us is. This morning, I want you to see that God's work brings our rest. First, we're going to see God's work brings our rest in the days of creation. But then I want you to see that God's work on the cross through the person of Jesus Christ brings our rest, our rest from striving, our rest from working, our rest from worrying whether or not we'll ever be good enough. We get to enter in because of the work of Christ, the eternal rest. So what's true? God created everything and made man. He made us in his own image. That's one of the driving doctrines that we find here, though there's many. And what do we do with this? Rather than finding worth in what we do, we are to find worth in being made in the image of God. So let's look at day one. God establishes his rule and reign over creation. God said in verse 3, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. I want you to underline that. You'll see that on all six days of creation. This is the first day. So God created by speaking. He spoke and things were, or maybe with his word, when he spoke, things came that were nothing into being. And then there was light. But what is the source of this light? I'm going to make the case that I believe it's the radiant glory of God. John 1, 1, if you'll look at, me, look at it with me, not look at me, look at it. It'll be on the screen. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. Jesus was with God, so Jesus and God are one. But he, or he was in the beginning with, with God, and, and the Word was God, so they're one. He was both in the beginning, he was with God, and he's one with God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, verse 14 will tell us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God's life and light-giving agent in creation. When God speaks, Jesus as the word is the one doing the work. Now you need to ask the question, what is this light? Because I've already, I've already played my cards. I've already showed you what I think it is. Because you know this so well, even though this was, became apparent to me this week as I studied. When did God make the sun? Day four, not day one. My mind was melting. I guess I never read well enough. So here's, 
either God forgot that he already made light, or maybe Moses somehow has a major typo here. He didn't forget in the first couple lines, right? I believe that the source of light for creation is God. The source of light for creation here is not clearly explained, but I believe the text is implying that it is God. Also, the John 1 passage that we read, Jesus not only is the the creator here, but he's also told to us to be the source of light. And it suggests the word is light. And Jesus later says that, Jesus, that he is the light. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, to be clear, uh, that is not the immediate context of this passage. The immediate context is talking about Jesus walking in the darkness when he physically came to earth. But I think the logic here follows the order of creation I think he's playing on that idea. And I think that Jesus, that God's radiant glory, is the source of light. John is also the same one that writes Revelation, and you're about to think this is pretty cool. So God allows us to peer into the end. He lets us know about this this new heaven and new earth that he's going to make. You know, that's what happens in in Revelation 21. God, God finally wipes out all evil, and he makes a new heaven and a new earth. And he does not make a son in this earth. So Revelation 21, 22 says this. You'll see it on the screen. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus is the light there. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. God does a lot of parallelism in the Bible. The first day of creation, when he creates the heavens and the earth, I believe it's him illuminating everything on the last day when he makes this new heaven and this new earth. It is the radiant glory of the sun who will light the new heaven and the new earth. So I think that it's a divine presence here. Also, I want you to notice that when God created the first day, he said it was good. From, from the third line in the Bible... God is establishing himself as the one who judges between good and evil, good and bad. He is establishing himself as reigning over creation. In the ancient worldview, if you name something, you now have divine authority over, or not divine, but you now have authority over it. We do that too. Like I was watching the, um, you know, the crocodile hunter? He had a son that is now also a crocodile hunter. I don't know his first name, but it's Irwin. And he was showing this Irwin turtle. And it's been a long time since I've seen on the show. I was like, Irwin, isn't that that guy's name? Well, his dad was the one who discovered the species of turtle. So he got to name it. We, we still operate in a similar way. God establishes his authority over creation by, by naming day and night. 
So on day one, God establishes himself as creator, judge, and the one who will reign over his creation. So we're about to move a lot quicker through each day. Day two, God brings order to the waters. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanses and separated the water uh, that, was, that, that were under the expanses from the waters that were above. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning. Again, don't miss, and there was evening, and there was morning. So it seems like on the globe at this point, there was no distinction between earth or water and sky, and doesn't, he doesn't give us a whole lot of explanation here, but that day he separated the, 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 the skies from, the, from the, the waters. And this word heaven here, uh, it can refer to lots of things, but since we're talking about the cr creative order on the earth, the sky is probably the most common explanation for it. So we see the sky being made here. And I just want to bring... Um, your attention back to remember verse two, that really fun word we said last week, tovu vavuhu, or however one would say that. Um, the idea there, it's it's uh, it's translated formless and void, but the idea is chaos. God brings order to the darkness. God brings order to the chaos of the waters. You're going to see that order is one of the main themes of the creation story. Let's look at day three. God brings life to the earth. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each and if you're underliner each according to its kind on earth and it was so and the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seeds according to their own kind again notice the order each according to its own kind and the tree bearing fruit which is their seed each according to its kind and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. God is, is getting very busy now on day three, and he created dry land. And he named land, and he named the seas. And then God created plants, and the plants on earth. Now, I, did you see every time it says, each according to its own kind? God is very, very, very concerned with order. He's concerned with order in creation. He's concerned with order in your life. He's concerned with the order in your home. He's concerned with order in your society. And he's concerned with the order in his church. God is concerned with order. God acknowledges that this part of creation is good. Day four, God creates the galaxy and the solar system. God said, let there be light and in the expanse of the heaven to, to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs for seasons and for days and years and let them be a light, uh, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God 
made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, it seems like, like I said earlier, God's been working on the earth prior to making the galaxy. I don't have an answer for that, but that's how he presents this. He, he, he makes the earth and he sprouts vegetation and he does all that before he sets the galaxy in motion. He says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons. Do you see why God created the heavens, the stars, order so that we can track day and night for signs and for seasons for days and for years god created the planet the planets for the benefit of humanity god created the solar system in such a way that we could live an ordered life ancient astrologers they looked out into the cosmos and by the stars and by the planets they knew what season they were in. They knew what seasons were coming. They figured out very, very precise calendars, some better than others. And every major ancient civilization in the world, they created their, their calendar by the night sky. Do you know the calendar we live by is the Roman calendar that was created by, guess what? The night sky. You know, at night, we get our stories by sitting back on our easy chair and turning on the TV. Humanity loves stories. And God put these constellations in the sky and they kind of look like things. And at night, these ancient peoples, they would go outside and they would look towards the heavens. And they would see, you know, they would draw a lion in a constellation, or they would draw a warrior in a constellation, and they put all these, all these constellations together, and they used it to tell their stories. And as the stars and as the planets moved through the year, that's how they tracked. That's also how they passed their stories. The, 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 the lion would move, uh, Leo would go over here and he would now be close to this other thing and they would tell a story about it. And that's also how they remembered what seasons and what things were coming. They also used it to navigate the earth and the sea. God gave us the planets for our benefit so that we could have dominion over the earth. Verse 16, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth. This is when God created the sun and the moon. And I mean, I, I, I had natural science in seventh grade. And, you know, to, for the plants to live, because they were created the day before, you need, you know, the, the chloroform and the, and the photosynthesis and all the things that require light. That's why I believe that God is, is this luminary presence to the earth. But now we have the sun and we have the moon. But 
The reason I've spent so much time reminding you of the first audience. So put yourself in the place of these Israelites. They're consuming all this information for the first time. Remember where they've been. They've been in Egypt. And they've heard over and over and over the stories of the Egyptian gods. The Egyptian stories of creation and Ra, the sun god. And it probably started seeming pretty right to them. Because how ancient people thought was, you want to know whose God is the most dominant or the God who's the most real? It's the one who wins the battle. It's the one who, who, who conquers. That's how you, that's how you know whose who's deity is the pow- most powerful. For 430 years, they had been slaves. Their entire life, all they had known is slavery. I bet it seemed pretty right. Likely, because none of this was written down. It was all uh, oral language. Likely for them, it was, it was hard, and they associated these things with gods. But they also remember seeing God block out the sun with the ninth plague, showing that he was more powerful than the most powerful God of Egypt, Ra. Yahweh God goes from being for them one of many gods to the one and only God. For a lifetime, the Jews, for the Jews, the sun, the moon, the stars were all connected to the Egyptian gods and were constantly hovering over them, declaring Egyptian dominance. Now they know that God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And they know that, that when they look at these things, they're not declaring anything about any of these other gods. They're declaring the majesty and the beauty of God Almighty. Now they know that this creation displays his, his handiwork and his glory. The pagan religion of our day, for the most part, is evolutionary theory. And it has tried, like the Egyptians, to look into the skies, look into the universe, to, to, disprove, to disprove the existence of our God. Only to find a creator is the most plausible explanation for our universe and how finely tuned it is. Couple, a couple of uh, inches over, closer to the sun, we burn up. A couple inches further away, we freeze to death. Without, the, without the, the moon orbiting around us, we would not be on the correct axis. Without the moon orbiting around us, the tides would not move correctly making life not conducive to to life on earth? If we weren't specifically placed in our solar system, the other orbits of the planets affect us. The gravity of the sun affects us. And if any of it was just slightly off, we wouldn't exist. And they find that as they expand their vision out further and further and further into the galaxies. 
They look into the heavens to deny God, but when they find his order and his rule, it only further proves his existence. God, again, here in this passage, he's asserting his authority to judge and his authority to reign when he says it's good. Let's look at day five. God creates the fish and the birds. And God said, let the waters swarm with, uh, with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the, the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. Do you notice that? Order. And God saw that it was good, and he blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And don't miss it. There was evening, and there was morning, and this was the fifth day. God, on the fifth day, he creates the birds, and he creates the, 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 the fish. He creates all sorts of life on earth. But notice the order, each according to its time, uh, kind. And this, each according to its kind, it is a repudiation of Darwinian macro. That's, that's the evolution that jumps from species to species. Now, we do believe in a microevolution. Like, look in your family. You've got people that are taller and short. Like, they change. People, like, but we're not changing from one species to the next. God has been commanding all these things to be created, but now something different happens. He, he goes from a God who's just commanding to a God who's blessing and commanding. The first blessing and command comes in verse 22. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the, seed, in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Let's look at day six. God creates life on land. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so, and God made the beast. Man, he's just really repetitive here. Does he want us to catch something according to their kind? And the livestock according to their kind and every creeping thing on the ground. Come on, help me out. According to their kind. And God saw that it was good. On the sixth day, he, he finishes filling the earth, and he puts life in the sky. He puts life in the water. He puts life on land now, each according to its own kind, and he declares it to be, very, to be good. He doesn't declare very good yet. I almost got ahead of myself. It's coming now. Let's look at verse 26. We're about to see the, the centerpiece for creation, the climax for creation, and that's the human. God said, let us, and notice let us, this is different, let us make man in, here's a plural word, our image. After whose likeness? our likeness 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation. On day Six, he says, let us. Who is the us that would be made in our image and in our likeness? Then it moves to being singular again, to being made in the image of God. The us is God. Our God is three in one. He's, he's, he has already introduced the spirit of God, the Ruah of God, we talked about last week, this word Elohim is a word that is plural in nature, but the, the verb behind it dictates whether or not you translate it as singular or plural. And here it would be again translated as singular. So there's a plurality in this singular God. We also know that John 1 establishes the word God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, that he was from the beginning and that he was the creative life-giving agent in creation. God reveals himself all the way in chapter one, all the way in this creation story as Trinitarian. We humans have a distinction that nothing else in all of creation has. We are created in the image of God. Now, I've got some thoughts on the, what the image of God is, but let's only infer what we find from the text here. I think one thing that we can see from the text is he placed us here to rule and reign over creation. He placed us here to work. It is a part of the image of God in us that we work and it's a part of the image of God that we subdue and steward. If you're not stewarding the world well, you're not walking in your God-given calling. Also, we found that God is eternal. I, I missed it on day one, but in day one, God creates time. God is outside of time. He's before time. He creates time, and he calls it day and night. God is before time. God is eternal. That's why God knows the beginning and the end. God's eternal. We have eternal souls. 
We also know that God is in community with himself, within the Godhead. God, we see here that he's, he's got the spirit with him. He's talking about let us. We know from John 1, and we know Proverbs 8's really cool because it's the same idea of John 1 that this, this personified wisdom is from the beginning with God who, who is begotten from the Father, the exact same language that we have about the Son later on. Jesus, the Son and the Spirit before angels, before earth, before anything, we're in community with one another. And then God makes us and he declares everything good. What was the only thing in all creation? We will find it in chapter two that God declares not good. That man's alone. God creates community for us. He gives us woman. And then what does he say? It's very good. In chapter two, the story talks more about this. And we're going to see that next week. But the crown jewel of creation is God placing his image bearers, the image bearers of God in this garden, in this world. Then he looks at it and he says, it's very good. And I want you to know this. Your worth is not what you're made of. What does uh, Genesis 2 tell us you're made of? Dirt. You're made of dirt. I was reading this thing this week about uh, explaining how much, like if you were to extrapolate all the elements from a human body and put it on the open market, how much it would cost. Just, just from like the, tab uh, the, the scientific table, what do you call that? The element table. I'll get there in a second. Thank you, ladies. And we, we add up to about a dollar. Your worth is not in what you're made of. Your worth comes from whose image you're made in. We all inherently have this worth. In verses 26 and 28, we are given dominion and ruling value over the earth. Our value comes from God's assigning his image to us. Adam is given a, a job before he ever does any work. It's inheritance. So I know somebody in here uh, had to work under somebody who just got a new business that he inherited. Adam didn't lift a finger and he got the job. It's because of who his daddy is. Adam and Eve's worth don't come from what they've done, but because they're made in the image of God. Think about Israel. Go back to this original audience. They had been in Egypt all of their lives, for all of their adult life, except for the part where they walk through the Red Sea, they've been slaves. Slaves are painfully aware of their worth because the world assigns it to them. Their worth is dependent on how much they can produce. And when your production goes down, your value and your worth goes down. The first thing they learn about themselves the first thing they learn about humanity is their worth has been given to them because they have been made in the image of God. How radical and beautiful do you think this message would have been to this, to this free group of people? Sometimes I think we go eye numb to this because we, we grew up in church and we know, yeah, we're made in the image of God. This is assigning value to you. You don't have to look at everything around you to find value. It's been given the, God's work 
gives you value. God understands that these ancient people, I think, probably had an issue with self-worth. And God shows them where their worth is to be found. It's to be found in the image of God. Depression in America is an epidemic, is it not? One of the greatest causes, or some of the great causes for depression, they have to do with worth. They manifest themselves differently. Sometimes it looks like low self-esteem or feeling, uh, or feelings of not being enough. But here's the deal. You can rest in knowing that your worth is not in you. It's not in something you can do. It's not in something you can make. It's not by someone else like loving you. Your worth has been given to you by a creator. You don't have to strive for it. I want you to know that your worth has nothing to do with what you can produce and everything to do with the work of God. Also, humans are made in the image of God. And I just want to say this very clearly, that racism is ignorance. Um, most of us here are Caucasian, and um, you realize, like, if, you, if you're one that deals with racism... Like, you realize that Jesus was of a different ethnicity than you, right? Like, he was not a white dude walking around in the Middle East as, like, the only one. Like, Jesus was a Middle Eastern dude in the first century. Racism has the idea that because someone is ethnically different than you, that they are somehow subhuman. They're in some kind of subcategory. We all are image bearers of God. And to deny it, to, to act in a racist way is denying this very base truth of the Bible. Christianity and racism are at odds. Now, we even see it as an issue in the New Testament because people, it's a part of who they are. They want to elevate uh, their culture and their ethnicity and their, who they are and at the expense of someone else. Again, most of you are Caucasian. At this time in the world, let me tell you what you were doing. You were either worshiping the pagan gods in Rome or you're up in Northern Europe and you're painting your body blue, you're cannibals, and you're worshiping little imps. If anybody's subhuman, it was us. This, this idea of, of elevating one ethnicity over another is denying this foundational truth of being an image bearer of God. And if that's something you have to fight, look, Peter fought that. You see it in the book of Galatians. It was something that he dealt with. And it is human to sin. But it's not allowed for it to reign in you. You have to acknowledge it and you have to fight it. We got a few more things I want to point out. Also, here we work is established. Work is good. But I want you to know this work is not where your worth is found. Worth is not where your worth is found. And I throughout my life have went into little spouts of depression cyclically because of this very issue, needing to find my worth in my work. 
I think most of us have a pretty bad theology of work. First, most of us struggle not finding worth in what we do. Because like, think about when you introduce yourself to somebody. What's one of the first things you ask them? Like, hey, what's your name? Oh, what do you do? <laughs> like, that's, that, for us, it's just central to who we are. Second, I think most of us believe that work is a result of the fall. Work is somehow a result of sin. Work, the creation of work, was not a part of the curse. God told Adam first to assert dominion over the earth. First, he was given work. You see in chapter 2, him working. Work, work is a part of being man. And if you're one who is lazy, denies work, or doesn't want to work, you're denying what it is to be made in the image of God. God designed us to work. Yeah, work should give us some degree of fulfillment because we were made to do it, but that's not where we find our worth. Verse 28, God blesses and commands us to fill the earth and to multiply and to subdue the earth. Family and procreation are part of the blessing from beginning, and so is work. But we should not idolize either one of these things. Though we can find joy, we can find happiness, we can find fulfillment in these things, these things are not where your worth is found. Your worth is found in God alone. And the last thing I want you to see on this day, as we look at all the days together, how did every day end? There was morning and there was evening? There was evening and then there was war morning. If we were to create it, how would we create it? Like we do. This, the world we live in has morning and evening, right? We base our days around what we can produce. God set it up. Rest, worship first, then work. As a matter of fact... Moses doesn't just come down the, law, the mountain with laws, though he does, and one of them has to specifically do with giving up a day of work for worship. He comes down with this law, and the totality of the Torah is the law, and we are given daily rest and daily worship. We are given weekly Sabbath rest and Sabbath worship. The, the festivals just about fall on the quarters. We're given quarterly rest and worship. Every seven years, you're to work really hard on the sixth year, and on the seventh year, you didn't get to work at all. A year totally devoted to work and worship every 50 years. Work and worship. Or uh, no, no more work and just, just worship. Do you think that God's concerned about this? In, in, my, in my quiet time, I've been reading, uh, I read from Genesis, I just finished, uh, about to finish Deuteronomy, and he, like, he's constantly talking about these things. The books are filled with these things, and somehow we think, okay, we've been omitted from rest. Rest is not been omitted to, like, we, we still have to Rest. God is showing us that our worth is based on Him, not on us. And I think the American production culture needs to hear this just as badly as these recently released slaves because we have made our work our idol and we serve it 
and we serve it all the way until we're used up and we're diminished. And then we start trying to cling to everything else to find, to find some sort of rest, to run away from the reality that we've not rested from our work by worshiping God. Our value comes from God alone. Lastly, let's look at day seven. God's gift of rest. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Did he mention rest a few times there? God makes the creation story the teaching point for the fourth commandment. They'd already received the, the, the commandments. That's when the first thing Moses comes down the mountain with. And on the fourth commandment, we are told to rest on the seventh day. God in his generosity created a week with rest and worship in mind because he knew we needed it. You feel, you feel anxious you feel beat up, you feel depressed. Those things often are a result of a lack of rest. You're using all seven days of the week to pursue your work and your hobbies. And God knew that you needed one day to pursue him. And you elevating that hobby, elevating that kid's hobby, over rest, of course you're used up. Of course you're anxious. Of course you're tired. God has set this world in such a way. He created us in such a way that we would feel used up if we did not rest. God tells us that he made the seventh day different from all the other days. And that seventh day, name one of the days that he blessed other than the seventh one. There's a blessing for us who observed the seventh day. This day is holy. The word holy means kadosh, or uh, it's, it's translated kadosh, and it means, it means to be different. It means to be set apart. It means to be designated by God. Kadosh has this idea of weightiness. This, this seventh day, this day of worship should be a day of weightiness when we consider what we are to do with it. The seventh day is to be meant, it's to be used for the worship of God. That we would learn to rest in God and to trust in God. We don't have to add that extra day of work in. That's the whole point that he's telling them like, like, take, you can trust me and you're going to find a blessing for taking this day off. It feels like you can't. It feels like you need to fill it. But if you take that day off, I'm going to bless you. You're going to learn to trust me. And I'm the one who provides everything for you anyway. I provided your job. I provided the air. I tr provided the water. I provided the food. You can trust me with this day. You're not, you're not going to not have enough because you've not taken this one day. 
And full transparency, I do understand that the seventh day is Saturday, but the reason we Sabbath on Sunday is because we're worshiping the day our, our Lord and Savior rose from the dead. So I just want to, some of you, that's going to be hang up. It's okay. The idea is resting in God. So here's the question. How well do you practice the Sabbath? How often are you filling your Sabbath with things that would distract you and your family from God? And I'm not the guy that's like, hey, you're walking in sin if you miss a Sunday. Like, go on vacation, go do stuff, go rest, go have fun. But is that your regular practice? Are you regularly Sabbathing? Sabbath is one of the main themes in the Bible. The book starts with Sabbath. And Jesus in the New Testament in no way does away with Sabbath. Now he does break down this legalistic, sinful use and abuse of Sabbath, but he in no way does away with Sabbath. Jesus came to earth, as a matter of fact, to bring about a new kind of Sabbath, a new kind of rest, Jesus brought a new type of Sabbath. We don't, we don't have to now be cleansed by priests. We don't have to go hear from God through a prophet. We don't have to wonder if we're being good enough to be accepted by God. We're not having to kill animals constantly to, to cover our sins. Jesus, by his blood, has cleansed us from all sin. Jesus, by his blood, has given us access to God. Jesus, by, by, by his blood has made striving to be good enough cease because he's made us good enough, because he was good enough, and he's given us his righteousness. Because of the work of Christ, we get to rest. Because of the work of God in the six days, we get to rest on the seventh. Because of the work of Christ, we get to rest. We can rest spiritually from trying to be good enough. We can rest in knowing that Christ was good enough and he did everything necessary to make us acceptable to God. Jesus has given us his righteousness and if we would accept it by faith, he would give us his. Our righteousness is not something to be obtained. This is what makes Christianity different from every religion in the world. Righteousness is not to be obtained, it's to be given by God. And God came to earth and dwelt among us and bled, bled and died for us. He opened his vein and he allowed those who he created to, to, to take his life in order that he would sacrifice and pay for their sins. He's achieved it all. And this is all preparing us for the day when the total Sabbath rest comes, when he creates a new heaven and he creates a new earth and we will dwell with him forever in his, in his Sabbath. We will dwell forever in his rest, worshiping our Savior, learning to take a Sabbath rest weekly through worshiping is preparing us for this eternal glory. Learning to worship weekly is preparing us for this eternal rest. God's work from the beginning to end brings us rest. His work in the beginning brought us rest and his work through Christ will bring us eternal rest. If you will, bow your heads with me.